0: Thank you, man. Take your Bibles and be turning to Philippians chapter 1. (coughs) Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read some verses there in just a moment. While you're finding that, as I was making my way down before the service, shaking hands and greeting people on this side, and I apologize, I ran out of time, didn't get to this side. I got to the back, and little Charlie let me know that he brought his stopwatch today and will be timing me. (laughs) Have you started it yet, Charlie? All right, he's got it running. (laughs) Just encouragement comes in all places here, doesn't it? All right, you found Philippians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading there at verse 1 and read the first two verses there. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father, And from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your goodness. Quiet our hearts now in thy presence. Father, speak through this preacher. Uh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. Work in hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. James Guthrie went to the scaffold And died because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And in telling James Guthrie's story, Jock Purves writes the following in a book called Fair Sunshine. He said, James Guthrie ever kept through his busy life his own personal fellowship with Christ in the fresh, joyous bloom of his new birth. As if he had been but a young convert. In fact, walking about 4 a.m. on the day he was to be executed. Walking about at 4 a.m. on the day he was executed, Guthrie spent time in personal worship and was asked by his friend, James Cowie, how he felt. And here's what James Guthrie said on the day of his execution. He said, very well, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Think about that, friend. We have a hard time rejoicing on Monday morning when it's time to go back to work. When it's time to go back to school and here is a man who's about to be executed for his faith that very day and yet he's filled with joy. How can that be? How can it be that he is still with joy on such a day as that? Well, if you're with us last week as we began our study of the book of Philippians, you know, you know, he had joy because he had Jesus. We learned or reminded ourselves last week that happiness depends on happenings and that's up and down and all around, but joy depends on the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody else said joy is the flag that flies over the castle of our hearts announcing that the King is in residence today. Now Paul, the writer of Philippians, we talked about him last week, the author of this book, Always keep in mind as we're reading, Paul is in prison when he's writing these words. But the theme of this book is joy, joy. Many of you, I trust, recognize the name of the old evangelist, Vance Havner. And Vance Havner said this at one point. I want you to listen to what he said. He said the church suffers today from a saddening lack of old fashioned, simple hearted, overflowing Christian joy. We have plenty of knowledge and plenty of enthusiasm and denominational zeal. But Christians and churches that started out in revival fires are living in the smoke. He says when one recalls that we're to rejoice in the Lord always and then looks in on the average Sunday congregation, he realized that something has happened to us since Pentecost. He went on to say in John chapter 20 and verse 20, read these words. Then were the disciples glad When they saw the Lord and old Habner says, here we have the secret of Christian joy. It turns upon those two words then and when it does not read then were the disciples glad when they saw themselves or when they saw their circumstances. We do not even read the disciples were glad when they saw a particular doctrine about the Lord. We are glad when and as we see the Lord. As we see him, we're glad we're joyful. And it's obvious when you read the book of Philippians. And I trust you've been spending some time reading through this book that Paul did not sit around looking at the chains that bound him. Instead, he was looking at the Christ who found him. His eyes were on Jesus. His eyes were on the Lord. He's in prison, yet he's filled with joy in prison. He was still joyful now, believer. What about you today? While all around you circumstances may be terrible and things may be going horrible, I wonder, are you experiencing the joy of the Lord? I want to pick up our study from last week. Last week we looked at the author, the Apostle Paul. Now I want to turn your attention to the audience next. I want you to go back and read that verse with me. Verse 1, it says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, the audience... This letter was written to all the saints, all the bishops, all the deacons in Philippi. He was writing to all the Christians and he wanted to address the leadership as well. Now, it's been wisely said, beloved, there are only two groups of people in the world and everybody falls within these two groups. There's the saints and the ants. The saints and the ants Bad grammar, good theology. The saints and the ants. Either you're a believer or you're not. And if you're a believer, you're a saint. Now, you might hear that today and say, wait a minute, preacher. I don't feel like a saint. Well, it doesn't matter. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're a saint. Saint has the idea of being set apart. You're set apart for Jesus Christ. You are a saint positionally. You are a saint. No doubt about it. Now, let me say you should be when practically as well. You should be seeking to be godly and holy in your walk. But the question this morning is, how does someone become a saint? How does someone know Jesus? Look at what it says. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints. Watch these next two words, three words. In Christ Jesus. How do you become a saint? You're in Christ Jesus. That is, you're saved. You've repented of your sin. You've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and His righteousness alone. And you are a saint. You're a believer. You're a born-again child of God. And I wonder today, friend, have you done that? Have you trusted Jesus Christ? Have you, do you know Him as your Savior? We see here that they were the saints in Christ Jesus. Not Watch the next part. Which are at Philippi. They're in Christ at Philippi. Both at the same time. This morning... We're in Christ, if we know him. We're in Christ in Ansonville. Or if you want to get technically speaking according to the post office, we're in Christ in Polkton. Both at the same time. Positionally in Christ and at the same time living this very moment in flesh and blood in this location. Now, they were saints. They were believers. And it says they were at Philippi. What do we know about this place known as Philippi? That's, of course, where this book gets its name. It's the epistle, the letter of Paul to the Apostle, to the Philippians, the believers at Philippi. Well, in, in actuality, we know a lot about Philippi. Let me share some things with you this morning about the city of Philippi. Now, the city of Philippi, for those that are in, uh, into geography and things, the city of Philippi was located on a fertile plain about nine miles from the Aegean Sea, northwest of the island of Thassos. Now, didn't that bless your heart? That was just a blessing, wasn't it? By the way, Neapolis served as the seaport. Well, let me make it a little more specific. Let's talk about what it was. It was a Roman colony, a Roman colony. Now, you got to remember something about a Roman colony, as the scholars tell us here. And I'm sharing this with you. A Roman colony was an outpost. It was an extension. It was a small reproduction of the imperial city. In other words, in reality, it was a miniature Rome. So if you looked around Philippi, you would see Roman things and Roman architecture, and you would see a miniature of Rome. In fact, the city's inhabitants were regarded as legal Roman citizens. They had a right to vote and to govern themselves. There was no Jewish synagogue that we know of there. Scholars believe, some scholars believe, that Philippi was even anti-Semitic. Now today, the city lies in ruins but the site has been excavated by archaeologists. And as they've done that work, they've uncovered a marketplace. They uncovered the foundation of a larger arch gateway and an amphitheater dating back to Roman times. Now, another important thing about the city of Philippi, and we're just laying some groundwork here, is that it, it, it had in it a very important trade route called the Via Ignatia. A very important trade route. Made it very Strategic. And that's where these saints lived. They lived in Philippi, a Roman colony, a miniature of Rome. Now, the question we really want to get to today is this. How did the church get to Philippi or in Philippi? Well, the good news is we know the answer to that. The good news is we even know some of the believers who were at the church and in the church in Philippi. And I want you to now, if you would, put a marker there in Philippians. You know, we'll be coming back there. But go to Acts chapter 16. We're going to talk about this morning the founding of the church of Philippi. I want you to know as you're turning, the church in Philippi was founded during Paul's second missionary journey. During his second missionary journey. We're going to read about how the church got started here. It all began with the Macedonian vision. In Acts chapter 16, I want you to find verse 9. Acts chapter 16, verse 9. Here's what it says. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed to him, saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neopolis. Remember, I told you Neapolis served as the seaport. And from thence, verse 12, to where? To Philippi. Which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia. There's more information about it. And a colony, a Roman colony. And we were there in that city abiding certain days. Now, don't close up Acts 16 because right now we're going to see what happens and how the church begins. Really, there are three conversion experiences here. The first one is a lady, a businesswoman, named Lydia. Look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside. Remember, there was no synagogue there where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul and when she was baptized and her household she besought us saying if ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord come into my house and abide there and she constrained us So the first conversion experience was of a woman named Lydia this businesswoman now the second conversion takes place next in his next verses and it's the conversion of a demon possessed girl who was in slavery While the text does not specifically say she was saved, we have every reason to believe that she was. And most scholars agree. Look there at verse 16. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, these men are the servants of the most high God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And so we have the conversion of this slave girl who was demon possessed. She's the second one who trusted Christ in that place. Well, I want you to understand something. Don't close it up yet. We're going to keep reading and see the third conversion. Because what happened was this was not a very popular thing with this slave girl's master's. Look there beginning at verse 19. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone. In other words, their means of making lots of money was gone. They caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace to the rulers and brought them to the magistrate, saying these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. Look at verse 22. And the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrate. Uh, rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. So don't close up, just keep in mind what's going on here. There's this deliverance of this demon-possessed slave girl and her masters drag uh, Paul and them to the to the magistrate, and they're beaten, and they're given over to the jailer, and they're in jail. They're suffering for the cause of Christ. Then you know the famous account, of the beginning in verse twenty-five. And at midnight, Paul and Silas, Paul and Silas, prayed and sang praises unto God. Now, stop for a moment. We said that the theme of Philippians is joy. We know this is one prison experience. Paul was in prison at Rome when he wrote Philippians. Yet I find him even here in, in prison in Philippi. He's praying and praising God. Now, if he was just depending upon his happenings and his circumstances, that would never happen. But what do we say? Paul had the joy of the Lord. That unchanging joy. Look at verse 26. The prisoners heard them, verse 25. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing the prisoners had fled. Verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we're all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in this his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized He and all his straight way. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And you can read the rest of that later and see what happened. But let me just say right there. There was the conversion of the Philippian jailer. Three conversions served as the nucleus or the foundation of this church. A businesswoman named Lydia, a demon possessed girl in slavery and the Philippian jailer. Quite a cast. Jerry Vine said perhaps Lydia was the head of the women's ministry. Perhaps the slave girl was the head of the youth ministry. And perhaps the Philippian jailer was the chairman of the deacons. I don't know. But we do know this. As Jerry Vine said, he said it shows a picture of how people come to Christ. You have Lydia, she had a tender heart, and she was led to Christ through a conversation. Then you have the slave girl in possession, demon possession, and she had a tormented heart and she was led to Christ through a confrontation as Paul confronted that demonic activity. And finally, you have the Philippian jailer. Vine said he had a tough heart, but, you know, he was one to Christ, as many people are through a crisis situation. We know various means of communicating the gospel and various circumstances around people's salvation where they come to Christ. But the key is always the same. Every person is saved the same by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, whether it be through a conversation, confrontation or crisis. But you have there now the church at Philippi. Now, going back to Philippians chapter one, Richard Millett Jr. had this to say about Philippians, the Philippian church. He said it became a model from its beginning. It was healthy, even though at the time of Paul's writing, it was experiencing a minor problem of disunity in the congregation. We'll study about that in chapter four. There's two ladies that were not getting along very well, and he addresses them in chapter four. But he mentions four characteristics of the church at Philippi. And I want to give them to you today. And we're laying groundwork now. And you're thinking about this as we study four characteristics, of the church of Philippi. Number one, Gentiles. Gentiles. The first converts were Gentiles, and Gentiles predominated the fellowship. Gentiles. Number two, women. Women. Women played an important role in the life of the church. Four are mentioned here. We know about Lydia. We just talked about her. We know about this slave girl. We talked about her. And then Euodia and Syntyche. We'll talk about them later. Four ladies mentioned specifically. So, Gentiles, women. Third, generosity. It was a generous church giving to Paul in needs. And number four, loyalty. The church stood by Paul throughout his life. Gentiles, women, generosity and loyalty. Now look at verse one of Philippians again. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which were at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. We understand as scholars tell us the church is still fairly young here. About 10 years has gone by since the church was founded, and Paul is now writing from that Roman prison. But we understand it, it was organized. It mentions bishops and deacons, the leaders, the bishops being the overseers or the elders or the pastors, and then the deacons. It was organized, young but organized. And let me say for a moment here, we praise God for those who serve in leadership roles in our church. They're not lords lording it over the congregation. They're servants of God and servants of the flock. I believe of all my heart in servant leadership. And I thank God for those who serve here, our deacons and other leaders. And I want you to pray for them and hold up their hands in prayer for wisdom. And Paul writing here says, I'm writing to all the saints and I'm writing to the bishops, that is the pastors, the leaders, the overseers and the deacons. So we know the audience who it's written to thirdly this morning. The salutation, the salutation, I look long and hard for an A, I love alliteration, you know, A, 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 but I didn't force this when the salutation verse two, we have the author, we have the audience Now the salutation verse two, grace be unto you and peace. From God, our father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in other portions of scripture uh, constable here helps us uh, grace. There is karis. It's a variation on the word usually used in Greek salutations, uh, namely Karin, meaning greetings. And then, of course, peace is shalom. It was the traditional Jewish greeting. Uh, it has the idea of full measure. And the source of these blessings, uh, grace and peace are from whom from God, the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice your grace. Of course, God's unmerited favor. Peace, the result of God's grace. Notice the order grace precedes peace. That's always the case to have peace with God. You must know the grace of God. But here, Paul's writing to believers. They'd already experienced God's saving grace. They already had peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's desiring for them, really, beloved, is a continuance of grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I like what uh, what McDonald said here. He said the former is not so much the grace that comes when a a, a sinner converts or or comes to, to conversion, but it's that grace to help in the time of need. Hebrews four sixteen. let us come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in the time of need. And the peace here is not so much peace with God that every born again child of God has. But it's the peace of God which passes all understanding in Philippians 4, 6 and 7. And both of these blessings come from God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, beloved, here's what he's saying. Philippian believers, I want you to abound in your Christian life. I want you to abound in your Christian life. He mentions grace here. We know the theme of Philippians is joy. So I want you to listen to these two verses. They're familiar ones. Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the spirit. If you were in Sunday school this morning, at least in adult classes, we talked about uh, living in the spirit, being spirit filled believers. The fruit of the spirit, listen, is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Paul desired that grace and peace, that abundant Christian life. I come, they might have joy and joy more abundant. You know what? That's what God desires for us today. God wants us to be joyful believers. God wants us to have the joy of the Lord in our lives. And Paul writing here said, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved these Philippians. They loved him. It's obvious as you read. I ran across this. I think many of us can relate to this. Paul Thickpin wrote the following in Discipleship Journal. He said, I remember coming home one afternoon to discover... That the kitchen I'd worked so hard to clean only a few hours before was now a terrible wreck. My young daughter had obviously been busy cooking and the ingredients were scattered along with dirty bowls and utensils across the counters and floor. I was not happy with the situation. Anybody want to testify there? Young mothers, fathers. But listen to what he wrote. Then, as I looked a little more closely at the mess, I spotted a tiny note on the table, clumsily written and smeared with chocolatey fingers. The message was short. I'm making something for you, Dad. And it was signed, your angel. Thickpin says, in the midst of that disarray and despite my irritation, joy suddenly sprang up in my heart, sweet and pure. My attention had been redirected from the problem to the little girl I loved as I encountered her in that brief note. I delighted in her with her simple goodness and focus. I could take pleasure in a situation that seemed otherwise disastrous. Then listen, he says this. The same is true of my joy in the Lord. Many times life looks rather messy. I can't find much to be happy about in my circumstances. Nevertheless, if I look hard enough, I can usually see the Lord behind it all, or at least working through it all, making something for me. Beloved, what about you today? Life may be messy. Circumstances are horrible. But take a moment and turn your eyes from the circumstances, from the mess around you, and turn your eyes toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And find again that joy in the Lord. Do you have that joy today? We've covered a lot of ground in the last two weeks. Hopefully laying a foundation we will continue to build upon in our study. But before we close today, let me ask you this, friend. Have you experienced the grace of God? Do you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have true abiding joy because you know beyond the shadow of a doubt you repented of your sin and took Christ as your Lord and Savior? We've already looked at the difference between happiness and joy. And today, if you're honest, perhaps you say, you know what, preacher, I've been trying in vain to find that peace and that that happiness. And I've tried all sorts of things. I've done all sorts of things. I've looked in all sorts of places. But I realize there's still a void, a hunger in my life. Well, friend, I got good news today. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one you're looking for. Not other things, not other events, not other happenings. Jesus is the one. And I want to invite you as we close today to come to the Lord Jesus and find him as your own Lord and Savior. And as we close as well, Christian, let me ask you this. Perhaps you're here today. And perhaps as we sing this closing song, perhaps you need to come down to the old-fashioned altar and kneel. And get your eyes off of the circumstances, off of the mess, off of everything else. And for a few moments, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'm going to invite you to come as well. Father, we love you. We worship and adore you. Magnify yourself in this place and in this invitation. I pray, O Father, if there's someone here today who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray as we have this, this invitation time, they'll step out and come and talk with someone today and find that grace and peace through Christ. I pray for believers, some who may be struggling right now, they'll come and they'll kneel and turn their eyes off of all the stuff going on and turn their eyes on you and rejoice in you. Lord, help us. Help us to be abounding Christians. The joy of the Lord, our strength. We pray now these things in Jesus' name. Amen.